Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Counselor Toolbox, bringing you practical tools for recovery from mental health and addiction issues. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. CEUs are available on demand for this presentation through our sponsor, All CEUs. Go to allceus.com slash counselor toolbox to register. Okay, so last week we went over crisis intervention. Um, today we're going to move on to PTSD, complex trauma, and looking a little bit in-depth, but not enough, just enough to be dangerous with cognitive processing therapy. We're going to explore the causes of PTSD, examine it through a strengths-based lens, identify tools to help patients deal with PTSD symptoms. We'll look at complex trauma and examine complex trauma from a developmental and strengths-based lens, and identify interventions to help patients acquire skills to mitigate the impact of complex trauma. So when we did the uh, DSM-5, one of the things we didn't spend a lot on is they changed the... um, Diagnostic criteria for PTSD a little bit, which made it a whole lot broader. Um, They changed it to read exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence via direct experience, witnessing in person, learning the traumatic event happened to a close family member or friend. Now that's new. Experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details. Interestingly, there's a note that says it doesn't apply to exposure through electronic media unless the exposure is work-related. I don't know what work-related really has to do with it. Um, I remember back during the um, 9-11, I mean, you couldn't turn on the TV without seeing people jumping out of high-rises and all these horrific images and stuff going on. So I don't necessarily agree with the whole work-related thing, But um, I didn't write the DSM. So (laughs) I would say if you're working with a patient who is experiencing significant distress from something, um, you know, let's treat it as what it is, whether we can make it fit the diagnostic criteria exactly or not, and and not tell them, well, you don't have PTSD because it wasn't (laughs) work-related. So the presence of intrusion symptoms, such as recurrent memories or dreams, Flashbacks, intense distress at exposure or to internal or external cues that resemble an aspect of the trauma. So let's take a few different events that we might be able to think of um, and talk about internal and external cues. Um, in the past, we've talked about how smell is one of our strongest memory triggers. 
Um, so if someone was maybe raped in the basement of a building, the smell of that dark, moist, mildewy, bleh, um, for a cop that I worked with, um, he was involved in a situation where a tanker truck blew up and burned the driver alive. Uh, the smell of exhaust fumes for him, which, I mean, it wasn't just burning or something like exhaust fumes, which he's going to encounter being a patrol deputy on a pretty regular basis. Um, so that was a smell for him. Um, if we're talking about um, maybe something happens, you're working with a client who is an addict, maybe was kind of living a rough life, prostituting, living on the streets, whatever, the smell of the crack house, the smell of the crack, um, those could all be cues not only to remind them of, uh, to trigger them for substance use, but also to trigger PTSD memories. Um, there are also things that are tangentially related, such as um, maybe a parent has a child die from drowning, an infant die from drowning. So the smell of baby powder or hearing a child cry, or seeing children, um, they're watching TV and a commercial comes on for some pool and spa place, and they see some mother holding her child in the water. I mean, there's a lot of things, if it reminds them of the victim, that can trigger that PTSD memory. So we need to help um, clients be aware of this, and we'll talk in a little while about how PTSD is actually a sort of evolutionary protective response, um, when it becomes PTSD, it's become overgeneralized. So that parent who had a, had a child drown, every time they smell baby powder, every time they walk past the baby aisle, they think of their baby, then it kind of spirals. Um, for the cop, the smell of exhaust fumes. You know, you can't be in a traffic jam. I don't... Um, know of any major city where you don't occasionally have traffic jams. So helping them see not only that the, um, the behavior is functional in a certain sense, but it also has become overgeneralized. And part of the treatment is to help desensitize them so everything doesn't remind them of the trauma. Um, when we work with addicts, uh, one of the things we say, change people, places, and things, because pretty much everything can trigger them to want to use uh, especially if they're in the same sort of general environment that they were in before. It may not be the same city, but they can see triggers and uh, visuals. Sights, when people, uh, if they were in a car crash, see a car crash, it can be generalized. Maybe they were rear-ended and they had whiplash and they were in the hospital and you know, it was a really bad car accident. When they see somebody tailgating, they can escalate. Again, I don't think I can go a day driving even in this sleepy little town without seeing somebody tailgate someone or drive some way that's some, somewhat reckless. <laughs> uh, sounds. Some people are very attuned to sounds. So you want to pay attention to what sounds were going on, not only right during the crisis, but maybe right after the crisis when the person was still in shock and they were just hearing lots of stuff. Um, 
I've worked with people, and you, you see it on TV sometimes, who are injured to the point where they are unconscious or just barely conscious, and they can kind of hear, but it's almost like they're underwater. Um, those sorts of sounds and sights and bright lights can trigger memories, which doesn't help necessarily, especially the being underwater. As you start to um, doze off, a lot of times things sound like they're further in the distance. So some people have a difficulty going to sleep because as soon as they start to drift off, they're like, I don't want to go back there again. Oh, and anniversaries, that's the other big one. Um, we say that in normal grief, we need to go through an entire calendar year. So we experience all the anniversaries and those sorts of things. Um, the same thing is true with PTSD. And we're going to talk some about how anytime there is a trauma, there is a loss to be grieved, a loss of security, um, a disruption of somebody's perception of the world. So we want to help people work through these anniversaries. Now, they may not be as generalized if it was, well, I don't know. I don't even want to say that. If, for example, somebody's um, house burned down, all the memories, the birthday parties, the um, good days, the bad days, everything kind of went away with that. So as you hit those anniversaries, my stepfather, when he was a very young man, had a wife and three children, um, and he and his wife went to a neighbor's house on Christmas Eve for a Christmas Eve party, and this was a small neighborhood, left the kids at home, they were asleep, and the Christmas lights caught on fire. His wife ran into the house, grabbed the infant, never made it back out. So he lost his entire family on Christmas Eve. He's 86 now, so it's been 60-some-odd years. Christmas, actually the two weeks leading up to Christmas, and all those reminders of happy children and all that kind of stuff, still to this day, it's easier, obviously, than it was 40 years ago. But it's one of those things that really for obvious reasons, rocked his world. Uh, Sites, for him, they don't have, in their house, they don't have Christmas trees. He's a very Christian man, but the Christmas tree is just too much to look at. Um, Now, his daughter, who has small children, has a Christmas tree, and we always have one. um, And places he goes, they're there. And he can deal with them in a limited context. Which is good. I mean, he's learned how to, I don't want to say compartmentalize, but he can deal with things in small doses. Another thing that we want to look at is persistence avoidance of stimuli. Avoidance or efforts to avoid memories, thoughts, feelings, or external reminders. So what's the function of avoiding all this stuff? Yeah, I I don't want to go back there. That was the worst day of my life. I don't want to go back there. It's too threatening. It's too dangerous. And it's too overwhelming because it conflicts with every world schema I possibly had. Or worse yet, maybe it reinforces every negative world schema. Uh, Now, there are functional and dysfunctional methods of avoidance. Substance abuse, dysfunctional. 
Other things that you can do, the cop, um, you know, he didn't work highway traffic stuff for a while. He didn't intentionally, or he intentionally did not, when he was off duty, did not go up on the interstate because it's a whole lot more likely you're going to be in a traffic jam on the interstate than other places. So there are things you can do to reduce your exposure to possible triggering stimuli. Um, and those are functional because, you know, why poke the bear if you really don't need to? On the other hand, um, substance abuse, withdrawing from all social supports, major depression. People just kind of withdraw into themselves, um, and it can be very destructive. They also may avoid dealing with it. They intellectualize it. And that's a method of avoidance, because they can tell you what happened, but they don't feel it. They haven't worked through those emotions. So until they work through them and work through the normal grieving process, they're going to be stuck. There's a part of them that is likely going to be stuck. Negative alterations in mood and cognitions. So inability to remember important aspects of what happened. I believe that our brains are actually really pretty smart, and they only allow us access to so much because if they allow us access to everything, we may not be able to deal with it. Um, as we work with patients who are in recovery, we find that over time, or I, I have found that over time, they start remembering bits and pieces of stuff that, oh, I didn't remember that from the past. Sometimes it's just telling and retelling the story and putting the pieces together. Cognitive processing therapy would say that it is the person being able to address um, or look at those particular segments of the memory at that point in time. And persistent exaggerated negativity. I don't like the word exaggerated, but... Um, it's always seeing doom and gloom. Those are the people who their world schema has changed into what we'll later identify as sort of the victim mentality. Very external locus of control, very global, stable um, attributions about everything. And it's all negative. Alterations and arousal. When somebody's exposed to a trauma, it's a threat, a trauma. Fight or flight kicks in. That's our natural, our body's natural way to say, I want to survive. After that happens, the person is still being triggered by the stimuli in the environment, and the brain hasn't said, okay, I'm smelling um, exhaust fumes, but this isn't that situation. It's saying, I'm smelling exhaust fumes. I remember the last time I smelled exhaust fumes. We need to get the hell out of here. So hypervigilance makes sense to me. Um, I worked with a patient who was at the house. He was a teenager, and his best friend committed suicide with a gun. To this day, or when I started working with him, um, any loud noises just sent him into outer space. Somebody closed a cabinet too loud. I mean, it wasn't just like a car backfiring. Um, if somebody knocked something over and it made a loud bang, he would 
feel like he was going to crawl out of his skin. So that hypervigilance was still there for him because he felt completely helpless and there was a lot of guilt related with feeling like he should have known his friend was going to do it and he should have done something to stop it. And We'll talk about that later in the... Um, later in the day, but until he was able to get through those stuck points, um, his mind, his subconscious, was always on alert for making sure that that never happens again. Which, when you're that high-strung, when you're that hyper-vigilant, you're going to get irritable and have angry outbursts because you've just got nonstop input. You're always on edge. So it doesn't take much to break that camel's back. Reckless or self-destructive behavior can be a way of making everything stop. You know, I need, I just need everybody to go away. I need all of you to stop. Now, that's something of um, withdrawing and avoidance as well, but they have it in alterations of arousal. Um, exaggerated startle response. We already talked about that with hypervigilance. Problems with concentration. If I'm worried that somebody's going to kill me or somebody around me is going to get killed, I don't have a whole lot of energy left over to concentrate on my calculus homework or doing my progress notes or whatever the case may be. So problems with concentration are logical because the person is, their mental energy is spread out, being alert and aware and constantly on guard which finally leads us, leads us to sleep disturbance. You talk to any guy, or any person, sorry, who's been in the military, and they will tell you that if you're in a battle zone, you don't sleep so well. You don't get those really deep um, REM cycles where you can sleep comfortably and wake up feeling just rested and wonderful, or at least not very often, um, because... It's not safe. It's not safe to sleep soundly. You have to hear. When we talk to um, new parents, that first three to six months, every time the kid turns over in the bassinet, you're like, something wrong? Um, anything that's going to keep the person on alert. Now, we'll go back to something we haven't talked about yet. When a child is born, if, they are, if there are complications in the birth and the child is either excessively premature or has, they stop breathing or whatever, if that can be traumatic to the new parent, especially depending on you know, how intense it is. Um, so they may be on alert. Now, does it meet this, the criteria for PTSD? Not necessarily. But you will see a lot of these symptoms in new parents, especially those who had children that um, had difficult births. So in law enforcement and fire rescue, pretty much, I, I don't want to say an average day, because in most cases, unless you're in somewhere like New York City, um, the average day is not going to be filled with trauma. Maybe three, four times a year. But that's still three, four times a year more than most people experience. 
So being exposed to that. Um, one of the things that I've heard, and I can't remember who said it, but most of the time when cops see people, it's on one of the worst days of their lives. So it may not be a traumatic event, but they're constantly seeing sort of the worst in people. They're not responding to a birthday party. Um, children exposed to domestic violence. That's threatening. Child can't defend itself. Child can't feed itself. Child can't house itself. So child is dependent on parental unit. If parental unit is in jeopardy, it's traumatic. Additionally, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, when we talk about complex trauma, children, especially younger children, think dichotomously. It's either all good or all bad. <coughs> so it's a whole lot easier, if you will, for schemas to become perpetually negative. If they see this negativity all the time where there's this domestic violence, moms, or maybe mom or dad or both are addicted, they constantly see the worst in people. They think that's normal. So they grow up thinking that's normal. And it creates these negative schemas, which means later, if they're exposed to more trauma, it just reinforces those negative schemas. Children whose parents are addicted, that doesn't always mean there's going to be violence, but it may mean mommy doesn't always come home at night, which you know, can be pretty traumatic if you're four and there's nobody else in the house. <laughs> Um, it could mean that mommy comes home, but then she passes out and you can't wake her up. It could mean that mommy comes home and she's, maybe she's an angry drunk or daddy, you know, whatever the case may be, um, and screams and yells and throws things. So it's dangerous. What would be considered traumatic for an adult or for a child may not be considered traumatic for an adult. So we do need to give kids sort of a wide berth when we consider what is actually traumatic to this person. Rape victims, you know, I think that goes without saying. And addicts, no, you know, can addicts have, be exposed to trauma? Yeah, addicts can be rape victims. Addicts can see their friends overdose. Addicts can get the crap beat out of them. It's a hard lifestyle uh, for a lot of people, not all, but it can be dangerous and it can be threatening. So we don't want to eliminate anybody and we certainly want to make sure we're not blaming the victims and saying, well, you know, what do you expect if you're hanging out the crack house? Mm -hmm. um, so evolutionary psychology asserts that certain fears may be, may be adaptations. Obviously military. But... Yeah. Um, uh, certain fears may be adaptations which were useful responses to various threats. In general, mammals and I've seen in other species, but we'll stick with mammals, display several defensive behaviors roughly dependent on how close the threat is. Avoidance, hypervigilance, withdrawal, aggressive defense, appeasement, and complete frozen immobility. So we've got these three feral cats at the house right now. And Marie has actually come around to be quite a lap kitty. But her two brothers are still a little on the outside. Avoidance. If you run into a feral cat, well, actually, in our house, they run from you. They don't want to interact with you, um, if, if at all possible. And they're on alert. They're looking around. If you come near um, 
Berlioz or Toulouse, they're all named after Aristocats, um, they'll kind of freak out. They're hypervigilant. They're always, they don't lay down and relax. Withdrawal. If they can, they're going to hide under my bed. I've got a king-size bed. If I reach under, I can't get them, and they know it. <laughs> if I do get them, then we've got aggressive defense. They will hiss, growl. If I get them in my arms, then they start to purr, which appeases me. <laughs> but most of the time, while they're doing that, if they are still in that feral mode, and there's a difference between holding a cat that likes to be pet and holding a cat that's in the appeasement zone, they're completely frozen and immobile. They're just like waiting for me to loosen my grip so they can fly out of my arms and get somewhere where they can hide from me. Uh, dogs, very much the same way. Donkeys, avoidance. Most donkeys are very cautious. I don't know much about horses. I know temperamentally they're quite different than donkeys. Uh, hypervigilance, they have those big old ears. And we watch our donkeys out in the pasture. And anytime a dog starts to bark, their ears are like little radar, radar dishes, and they can turn like 270 degrees or something, and they stand straight up. So you know that there's something going on, and if they smell, and I'm, since we're on video, I'm not going to do it, <laughs> but if they smell a, a new smell, they open their mouth wide so they can get more scent in on their, on their olfactory, and it looks like they're laughing. They throw their head back, and they show all their teeth, and... It's cute when a donkey does it, not so much when I do it. <laughs> um, so they're constantly on alert because donkeys, despite the fact that they're, I mean, ours are mini donkeys, so they're only 350 pounds, but they've always been prey animals. They are not predators. They're herbivores, and they can be, you know, wolves and coyotes and those sorts of things will attack them. So they withdraw. Whenever there's a threat... They don't approach it, generally, unless they think they can take it. Um, they'll withdraw. Now, our donkeys are in a fenced pasture. It's like four acres, you know, so they can, they can move around. But if somebody, if an animal comes into our pasture, we've had a couple dogs jump our fence, the donkeys will chase them. They will chase them around until we come out and sort of break it up or the dog jumps into the pond. Um, <laughs> Appeasement. Flojo and Whoopi, they really don't like having their hoofs picked. So we go through this. They avoid us. They're hypervigilant. They see us coming out with the, the kit. They run. When they can't run too much, they have aggressive defense. And it's not, you know, it's not horrible. But we tie them up. And if they don't want their hoof picked, again, being 350 pounds... <laughs> They get their way. Well, they don't get their way, but we have to wear them down until we get them to the point of appeasement. It's like, okay, we're going to sit here for an hour if we need to because you've got to have that hoof picked. And donkeys are smart, so if you let them get away with it once, you're toast after that. And then complete frozen immobility. Thankfully, our donkeys have never been scared enough where we've gotten to that point, but an animal can and does just kind of freeze. Children, we see the same thing, and adults, you know, we also see the same thing. Part of this is when our emotional mind is taken over and that fear is going, we go into this more primitive reactive state instead of 
assessing cognitively this current present situation. We're back in whatever situation was threatening in the past. With a lot of our patients, they endured abuse or neglect as children. When they perceive something similar today, they react as if they're eight. We need to help them recognize the new tools and strengths they have being 28 and how much less vulnerable they are. Not negating how much it sucked back then and they couldn't do anything about it, but now at 28, they don't have to react the same way. So we've talked about some of the predictors of PTSD. Proximity of the event to a safe zone, whether that's where you, where you live, your neighborhood. It always, it always makes me uh, curious. When something happens in a gated community and people freak out because they thought they were insulated from everything. Most gated communities don't have like an eight-foot barbed wire fence all the way around. You just can't drive in without going through the gate. Um, so people have this false sense of security. So when something happens there, it almost seems to strike them harder than if they would have been living in one of those normal random access communities. Um, college campuses. We have this feeling of insulation being on a college campus. Because again, the general public and most college campuses, well, at least at UF, and, and any of those others that are not just kind of within the city, um, the general public doesn't drive through the campus. You, it's a 20 mile an hour speed zone and you've got to go through uh, little guard houses in order to get on campus so you feel safe. But the same thing's true. I mean, there are no walls. So we shouldn't really be surprised Number one, if crime comes on campus, but that's assuming that everybody in this gated neighborhood and everybody on this college campus is a saint. And that just isn't true. Similarity to or familiarity with the victim. If you're a parent and it's a child that's injured, if you're a parent and it's another parent that's injured, anything that makes you feel a personal connection um, may make it more likely for you to experience PTSD. Availability of social supports within two hours and ongoing. Two hours is our window. People are in shock. They need that social support. By the end of two hours, people have started to compartmentalize, intellectualize, do whatever they've got to do to survive. So getting someone there that's a good social support, whether it be a spiritual leader a counselor, a crisis intervener, a particularly well-trained cop, whoever it is that can help that person get grounded and connect. Now, it's not, we're not going to fix anything two hours after a trauma. But we can help them start to ex identify and accept those feelings and then figure out what they're going to do with them validate those feelings, and help them feel safe again. In that initial two hours, one of the keys is making sure people feel safe again. A history of mental health issues, especially those involving serotonin, norepinephrine, or dopamine imbalances. Um, serotonin imbalances, we know, are related to depression. 
and to a certain extent, anxiety. Um, norepinephrine, overactivation of norepinephrine has been implicated in flashbacks and nightmares. We know that some of our uh, patients who have depression are on um, selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, instead of SSRIs, which tells you that, hey, they probably have some sort of a norepinephrine imbalance that's um, contributing to their mood issues, which means we can be a little bit more confident that if their norepinephrine system is not kept in check, they're going to have more difficulty with flashbacks and nightmares. And then dopamine. Dopamine is our happy chemical. If the dopamine is low, people feel a lack of motivation, apathy, depression. If their dopamine is too high, they may, may become agitated and restless. So if they have any of these, it means that they're having difficulty sort of processing everything and staying on an even footing. Childhood trauma with dissociation. Complex trauma in childhood is going to create some negative schema that may impact people's perception of the world after a traumatic event in adulthood. However, if the trauma was significant enough in childhood that they develop the skill, if you will, to dissociate, that dissociative ability is going to carry to adulthood, which is one of those symptoms of PTSD. Cortisol imbalance. Interestingly, a lot of the studies, now the studies are kind of all out there, but a lot of the studies have implicated um, low cortisol in people who develop PTSD. And they looked at um, soldiers as well as uh, rape victims and a variety of different stressors. Their hypothesis is that um, people with low cortisol, this develops because when they, their system kind of goes from zero to 120, Whenever they're exposed to a stressor, there's so much cortisol, there's so much reactivity that their body maintains a lower level of cortisol to balance it out. So the, the lows are low and the highs are high, and it meets somewhere in between. It keeps. So are these going to be people that are uh, particularly sensitive to? The, these are people who are going to be more likely to develop PTSD. Right, I'm just trying to. I mean, I, I remember cortisol, but I don't remember a whole lot about it. It's part of the fight or flight. It's part of the fight or flight, and it's also responsible for helping the body return to homeostasis. Okay. So in these people who had low cortisol, the theory is they were exposed to trauma or maybe there was a biological issue, uh, an organic issue early on, um, that makes them more reactive. So they have this extreme gush of fight or flight in so, order to keep the so brain... in a sense, they are more sensitive to trauma, whether they go to PTSD or not is not really... 
they yes, they are more reactive to their environment, much more reactive. We also want to look at people's six-month stressors. Included in this is chronic adversity. If somebody is barely making it, they hate their job, they're in a... We had some neighborhoods where I came from in Florida. You couldn't sleep through the entire night without hearing the cops come into the neighborhood. I would call that chronic adversity. Even if, you know, you had the most wholesome household or whatever, if you hear all that going on around you, it's going to disrupt your sleep and keep you on edge. Familial stressors, health stressors, and this can include anything from chronic illness, chronic pain, to maybe something that has disrupted your routine. A friend of mine is a um, motorbike racer, and he fractured his tibia, I think. Um, not all the way through, it's just a hairline fracture, but he can't ride for eight weeks. I'm waiting to see if he crawls out of his own skin. Uh, that adds, if that is one of the ways that you deal with stress and you can't work out, it can create additional load on your body. Financial stressors and a job stressor burnout. This isn't something we normally ask about when we're asking people about what have your most recent stressors been? You know, have you, have you lost a job? Have you had a kid? Have you done all these things? But that undercurrent of just general burnout and exhaustion and not liking your job or not feeling empowered takes a toll because you're spending you know, 50, 60 hours a week at your job. So cortisol is the primary hormone responsible for the stress response. Main function, restore homeostasis. Many studies have correlated low cortisol with PTSD. One study found that child abuse victims with PTSD experienced enhanced cortisol activity in response to traumatic reminders. Researchers concluded that low levels of baseline cortisol may compensate for periods of higher cortisol. That's what we just talked about. Um, there are other studies that looked at um, soldiers and found the same general thing. They haven't accepted as fact yet that low cortisol is necessarily a telling predictor. But it's kind of like what we talked about last week in crisis intervention. Smoking is highly correlated with um, suicidality. Go figure. You know, there's a lot of people that smoke. Um, so how did they come up with that? But repeatedly in their regression analyses, smokers tended to be more um, likely to attempt suicide. So. Okay, so with uh, cognitive processing therapy is one of the tools that we're using, and we'll take a little break uh, before we get into this. Kind of go through this slide. It is the be all end all treatment right now, if you will, for um, the VA. In CPT, we educate patients about PTSD and explain the nature of their symptoms, make it make sense. 
a lot of people who choose um, military life tend to be very strong on the cognitive, the thinking versus the feeling, temperamentally. Um, so if we can help them understand how it makes sense, it can be changed and you know it's generalized and all that kind of stuff, but from a certain point of view it makes sense, it's easier for them to wrap their heads around instead of feeling like this just uncontrollable cloud is enveloping them. We help them explore how traumatic events have affected their lives, learn about connections between trauma-related thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. This goes back to your basic ABC and D&E. Remembering the traumatic event and experiencing emotions associated with it. Like I said earlier, um, even though CPT, cognitive processing therapy, emphasizes cognitive, it also um, emphasizes the fact that if you don't work through the entire depth of the experience, the emotions, the reactions, the cognitions, you're going to remain stuck. Um, CPT increases patients' ability to challenge maladaptive thoughts about the trauma. It helps them increase their understanding of unhelpful thinking patterns and learn new, healthier ways of thinking. And it facilitates their exploration of how each of the five core themes have been affected by their traumatic experiences. And the five core themes we're going to talk about are trust, safety, esteem, power and control, and intimacy. So let's go ahead and take a five-minute break before we delve into CPT, and then we will delve.